The scripture for today's sermon comes from John chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. The word of God speaks to us like this. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. This is the word of God to us. Hey guys, good morning. It's, uh, it's good to see everybody. I'm glad you're here today. If we haven't met yet, <clears throat> my name is Josh Curry. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, I'm really, really thankful. I'm thankful that we get to worship Jesus together. I'm thankful that we get to be salt and light in our city together. And I'm really grateful to God for those of you that are new to our church. Thanks for showing up today. God's doing some really beautiful things among us. And uh, I don't think it's a stretch to say that we're seeing some evidences of renewal and revival in our church. We, we had over 50 people go through our day-long membership class yesterday. And uh, the hunger for God, the hunger for God's word, the desire to use their gifts for building up the body of Christ was really encouraging. It was really beautiful. So I'm really thankful I get to be a part of this church, and I'm thankful today that I get to share God's word with you. If you've got a Bible, you can go ahead and turn to John chapter 11. We're going to cover several passages in this text, and uh, I'm going to pray for you and ask you to pray for me, and we'll dive in. Father, I thank you so much for your faithfulness to your word. Lord, uh, we, we break promises all the time. We say things we don't mean all the time. We make commitments and then go back on our commitments all the time. But uh, you have never done that one time in eternity past or in history. You don't change your mind You don't don't speak empty, vain, or trite words. You keep your word. And I pray today for my friends that are struggling to believe you. My friends that are waiting in the midst of unanswered prayer. God, today I pray that your trustworthiness would become the most beautiful and real thing in their lives. I pray that you would bolster them with the fact that you are not a man that you should lie. So today as we open up this text and as we talk about waiting for Jesus and the defeat of death, I pray that you would give us hope. God, I pray that we would not be like so many Westerners that deflect death, that pretend that death isn't a reality. I pray that you would give us courage in the presence of Jesus today to look death in the eye and to know that death is on the clock, that we don't have to be afraid. We we don't have to be neurotic in avoiding death. I pray today, Jesus, that you would form us and shape us and help me to serve my friends. We ask all this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, 
<clears throat> Amen. Amen. So we are in the second week of Advent, and Advent, as Chad unpacked last week, is a twofold moment in the history of the church. As we get to this point in the calendar of the liturgical year, Advent invites us to two things. And these two things are really essential because the Christian life is a life of tension. It's a life of tension. It's not a happy, clappy life, and it's also not a morbid life. The Christian life is a tension in which we stand in the midst of joy and sorrow. It's a life where we stand in the midst of hope, hope, and longing. It's a life where we stand in the now of Jesus's kingdom, knowing that the Messiah has come and the kingdom has dawned and the spirit of God has been given and sin and Satan and death have been definitively overthrown by the death and resurrection of Jesus. But we also stand in the not yet Faith is not yet sight, and the fullness of the kingdom isn't yet here, and we're not in the new heavens and the new earth. And our bodies remind us all the time that that day isn't here yet. The Christian life is a life of power. Make no mistake, Jesus is alive. And we can pray big prayers, and we can see miracles happen, and we can see sins forgiven We can see relationships reconciled. We can see darkness pushed back in the world. But the Christian life is simultaneously a life of weakness, a life of frailty and fragility, a life where we still struggle with sin, a life where good things often don't happen around us. And Advent invites us in this moment in the calendar to identify with the Old Testament people of God as they wait for a savior. So that on Christmas morning, as we wake up and celebrate the birth of Jesus, we've done the work with the spirit of God to prepare our hearts to stand in the midst of the incarnation with awe and wonder, not treating it as old hat. To stand, to stand in the presence of the Old Testament people of God, the prophets and the priests that told us that God would keep his word, that a son would be born, we stand with them in Advent. And Advent also invites us to stand in this moment in history as we wait for the return of Jesus. Last week, last week, Chad focused on our eschatological hope in Christ that we are waiting for his return. And God has promised and pledged that in the fullness of time, in a day and an hour that no one knows, Jesus Christ will part the heavens and come down. Today, today, our focus in Advent is on the return of Jesus and what that means for man's great enemy, death. The tyrant that touches all of us, the great equalizer, the reality that faces both the rich and the poor, the educated, the uneducated, Westerners, Easterners, all people in all places at all times live in the shadow of death. And the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus and eventually the return of Jesus is God's answer to the problem of death. And so today what I wanna do in our text is start by showing you two realities that are not the enemies of deep Christian joy, they're the context of deep Christian joy. And these two two realities 
invite us into the darker work of Advent. And by darker work, I don't mean evil work. I mean the kind of work that we are afraid to do, the kind of conversations that we don't like to have, the kind of things inside of us that we don't like to look at. Our text begins by pointing out that evil, suffering, and death are not abstract problems. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, a certain man. Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Much ink has been spilled on the problem of evil, and and rightly so. Philosophers have engaged the problem of evil. Theologians have engaged the problem of evil. And that's not a bad thing. That can be a very helpful thing. But as the Bible unpacks the reality of living in a world that's been torn by sin, the Bible's really honest that the problem of evil, the reality of suffering, and the tyranny of death are not philosophical issues, they're concrete issues. They're relational issues. In our text, we have a certain man, a man with a story, a man with a name. And we have that certain man's closest circle of friends, his sisters that loved him. This is not, this is not a math problem. This is a human problem. Death itself isn't nameless. It's not faceless. And we live in a moment, by the grace of God, with much common grace. We have good medical care, praise be to God. We have enough food, praise be to God. Most of us live in neighborhoods that are relatively safe, praise be to God. Those are good things. I'd like those things to become a reality for every human on our planet. But in the midst of those blessings, what can start to happen is we can bury our head in the sand and we can forget that the reality that Lazarus faced is the reality that all 8 billion of us on this planet also have to face. That you can't avoid it. You can't outrun it. You can't pretend like it doesn't exist and alter reality. Evil, death, suffering, are concrete realities. In addition, our text reminds us that the work of God, the work of God is often confusing, offensive, and really slow. The work of God is often confusing, offensive, and really slow. Look at verse five. This is a baffling verse. This is a verse that invites us into the tension of following Jesus. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Just stop there for a second. He loved them. He loved them. He knew them and he loved them. He knew their faults. He knew their sins and he loved them. He invested his heart into them. He offered them his presence. In fact, it's not an overstatement to say that Jesus came to be born of a virgin for them, for them. He saw them, he cared about them, he wanted the best for them, he loved them. But look at verse six and let the scandal of it hit you. 
So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Okay, this is a crazy dynamic of the God that we love and serve. It tells us that Jesus loved Lazarus. He loved Lazarus's sisters, and because of his love for them, not in spite of his love, he doesn't show up according to the timetable that would have alleviated their immediate suffering or made life easier for them. He delays. He delays. And because of Jesus's delay, They had to stand in the pain and tension of knowing that they had seen Jesus do miracles, knowing that Jesus was the very Messiah that they hoped for, the one that could bring light into the darkness. And in the midst of knowing Jesus, the pain of Jesus not showing up and answering their prayer when they wanted him to was very real. Look what happens in verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Jesus's delay led to death and decay. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But look at the next line. Mary remained seated in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, and feel the pain here, don't sanitize this verse. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. These verses invite us into the tension of Advent, the tension of living in the now and not yet and waiting in the dark for the power of God. They remind us of the difficulty that every person in this room All of us have at least a couple of prayers that are desperate and urgent that God hasn't answered yet. That there's power and there's hope and there's love and there's presence in Jesus. That he's worthy and he's good and he loves us. And also, there are desires unfulfilled that are good desires. I had a single friend talking to me recently about her loneliness her loneliness. And and it almost seemed as if if she had bought the cultural narrative that there was something wrong with her because she was experiencing loneliness. And I just tried to love her and say to her, hey, actually, the loneliness that you feel in your chest is a gift from God to remind you of the destination that he's created you for. And no relationships on this side of glory will ever fully or completely take away your loneliness. Your loneliness is a beacon that reminds you that you're not yet home. We live in the midst of many prayers that are unanswered and issues that are unresolved. I got an email from a dear friend this week whose wife died tragically this year. And the email was crazy. It kind of blew my my mind because it was like a concentrated introduction to so much of the Christian life. It was full of celebration that God had moved, places where God had met him and answered prayer, places that he felt the presence and peace of God, places where community had met needs and been the hands and feet of Jesus. And at the very same time, not, not, a happy, clappy stuffing of the sadness, but honesty about the longing and his needs and his grief 
And as I read that email, I thought, hey man, this is Advent. This is Advent. And Advent is in some really real ways the definitive season of the Christian life as we wait for Jesus to come back. One author put it like this, in a very real sense, the Christian community lives in Advent all the time. The disappointment, brokenness, suffering, and pain that characterize life in this present world is held in dynamic tension with the promise of future glory that is yet to come. That is the Advent tension that the church lives in. An author I love named Gene Edwards who wrote a little book called The Prisoner in the Third Cell. It's about John the Baptist facing beheading from Herod and wondering if Jesus, his cousin, was gonna get him out of his situation. And Edwards puts it like this. The question before the house is this. Will you follow a God you do not understand? Will you follow a God who does not live up to your expectations? And listen, Mary and Martha are asking that question in our text today. Why didn't you show up? You could have been here. You could have prevented this. You could have kept him out of the tomb. Why didn't you prioritize Lazarus? Because we know that you loved him. The heart of Advent is found in this, and the heart of the good news of Jesus is found in verse four. This is why we are not morbid. This is why we don't throw off hope. Look at verse four. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified through it. What Jesus is saying is that the very worst things that happen to the people of God also are the arena of his, of his revealed glory. Jesus is pointing out a reality that we find on every page of the New Testament that there are no tears that won't be wiped away. And there are no sufferings that compared to the glory that's coming when we see Jesus face to face that won't be described as light and momentary. And by the way, if Jesus wasn't returning, if the new heavens and the new earth weren't a promised reality, it would be absurd for the Bible to talk about our present afflictions being momentary and light because bad things happen. Bad things happen. Tragic things happen. Evil things happen. But in light of what's coming, what we find is that God for his people has pledged in his son that there's nothing you face. There's no suffering. There's no brokenness. There's no sin. There's no disease. There's no poverty. There's no relational fracture that on the great day will not be transformed in such a way that you will see it through the lens of Jesus and you will be led to gratitude, worship, and glory on that day. And this is the tension. How do we stand in that? How does God answer the concrete problem of evil, sin, and death? Well, he, he doesn't send us a philosophy. He doesn't send us a math problem. God's answer to the personal, real, concrete problem of sin and death is found in a son. A son. And Advent invites us to stand with Jesus in both mourning and hope. It calls us to stop avoiding death and look it in the eye with courage, rooted in what he's done and in what he's promised to do.
So take your Bibles. I want to show you, I want to show you four things that Jesus does with death. Four things Jesus does with death. Number one, number one, Jesus weeps over death. Jesus weeps over death. Look at verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, the shortest verse in the Bible and a beautiful verse, Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. Okay, the the posture of Jesus in the midst of this moment is really fascinating because Jesus knows what he's gonna do. He knows that he's about to turn the funeral into a party. He knows he's gonna do that. And yet Jesus doesn't deny the sorrow of death, the evil of death, the tragedy of death. In this moment, Jesus is moved with compassion and he weeps because he, as the son of God, knows better even than you and me know that we were not created to live under the tyranny of death. The death is not just a part of the natural cycle of life. Death is the result of the fracturing of humanity in the world. And we inside of our hearts know that that's true. Eternity's been planted in our hearts, so we rage against death. We fight against it. We resist it. <laughs> There's people that do crazy things to avoid it. If you've ever seen 127 Hours, the movie about the hiker that was canyoneering that got trapped under a boulder and cut off his arm with a pocket knife, that's a pretty good picture of just how far we'll go to say no to death when we can. Jesus weeps over death because he knows that it's an intruder into God's good creation. And what I love, what I love about this is that Jesus weeps over death because the one he loves is ill. Now, I just want to stop here for a moment and give you really good news. Your illness and infirmity, and I mean that in the broadest possible sense, your physical illness, certainly, but also all the maladies that are a part of who you are and who I am, the places that we've broken what's beautiful and the places we've been broken by others, our wounds, our sin, the parts of us that are ugly and malformed by the world in which we live, all of those things that are a part of who we are that we would love for people to not see, the things that we think, if anybody really knew, would cause them to reject us. Jesus sees it all fully, and he actually loves those that are ill. He loves them. And in fact, there's never been a single person in the history of the world that Jesus loved that wasn't ill. He loves us in the midst of where we're bent and broken and twisted and sinful and fractured and sad and anxious. The love of Jesus meets us in the place of our brokenness. And so Jesus weeps because the one he loved was ill. And I would say to you today that the compassion of Jesus for you not justification of sin. Jesus, Jesus doesn't sweep sin under the rug. Jesus came to die to atone for sin. Sin's a big deal, but even in the midst of your sin and the places where your dreams have been busted up and where your relationships are frayed and where you walk with a limp metaphorically, those are places that don't turn Jesus off. Those are places that move Jesus with compassion to draw near you. That's the savior that we love and serve. He weeps over death. He weeps over death. Number two, 
Jesus is also angry at death. And this is so important. This will give you a more full understanding of the emotional depths of the living God. Look at verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Um, Greatly troubled is a pretty bad translation of the Greek word here. Because the Greek word that's being translated as deeply troubled and moved in spirit is a Greek word that means to be moved with profound anger and indignation. It's a word that Greek authors use to describe war horses snorting in the midst of battle. Like, think about that image of a powerful war horse running to the battle, charging, snorting out of its mouth and nose. That describes how Jesus responds in this moment to death. He is furious. He's angry. He's angry. And we have to ask the question, who is Jesus angry with? Why is Jesus angry? And some commentators have said some really dumb things. Um, it's, it's possible for really smart people to be really dumb in ways that really dumb people can't be. Like, one, one commentator said that Jesus was angry at Mary and Martha because they're doubting him. No. Others have said that Jesus is angry at the crowd because they said, he that opened the eyes of the blind man, couldn't he have kept this man from dying? No, that's not what's in the context. Some have even suggested that Jesus was mad at Lazarus for dying. That's weird. It's weird. And and then some, some on the really crazy, hippy-dippy, therapeutic side of things have said that Jesus is just angry at himself that he didn't show up on time. (laughs) Stupid. Okay, there's a better answer. It's the plain sense of the text. Who is Jesus angry at? Jesus is angry at death. He's angry at death because death is an enemy. He's angry at the way that death mars and twists and breaks. He's angry at the way that death shatters relationship. And what I want you to see in this particular verse is that the anger of God, Jesus is God in the flesh. The anger of God is not incongruent with his love or his goodness. His anger is an outworking of his love and his goodness. The Bible doesn't say that God is anger. That's good news, right? The Bible says God is love, but the Bible also is really honest about the fact that God has righteous indignation towards evil. And what I want you to see is that this text, this little verse is a reminder to us that the anger of God is actually really good news. It's really good news that God opposes all that's evil and that decreates and deforms. It's good that God is angry at evil. It's good that God has righteous hatred of all that's broken and sinful and defiling in this world. The anger of God, motivated by the love of God, is what results ultimately in all evil being destroyed on the great day. Number three. Number three, Jesus doesn't just weep and he doesn't just get angry. Jesus does something. He brings life to the dead. Look at verse 38. Then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he's been dead four days. 
Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and he said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on the account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to him, unbind him, let him go. Now, listen, friends, as far as I can tell, and I may be missing something, and if I am, let me know between services so that I don't blow it in the 11. But as far as I can tell, every time in the New Testament, in the Gospels, that Jesus encounters death, he performs a miracle of resurrection. Jesus ruins funerals all the time. He raises a little girl from the dead. He meets a funeral procession, procession and he raises a man from the dead. Jesus encounters death and he raises the dead. He raises the dead. And what's crazy about that is that that's not just something Jesus does, that testifies to who Jesus is. It testifies to who he is. Look at verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you're the Christ, the anointed one, the son of God who is coming into the world. Jesus raises the dead in his earthly ministry because Jesus is the resurrection. Jesus, Jesus pushes back the darkness of death because Jesus is the light. He is the light. And this raises a really interesting dynamic because every person that Jesus raised in the New Testament eventually died. It was a great party when Lazarus was raised from the dead, but guess what? Five years, 10 years, 15 years, I don't know. Lazarus got sick and Lazarus died. The little girl that Jesus raised from the dead, she eventually died. The man that Jesus raised from the dead in the midst of the funeral possession, Jesus who raised him also knew that he would die. And this leads us to the question, when Jesus says that he is the resurrection and the life, what's he pointing at? What's he getting at? And I certainly believe that we should have faith if the spirit of God leads us to still believe that God can physically raise the dead today. Believe that with all my heart, that the same God who is working in the New Testament is the same God that's alive today. And if you're ever in a situation where you feel that the spirit of God is giving you faith and courage and boldness to risk and pray that God would raise someone from the dead, I think you should do it. But listen, this leads us to the fourth thing that this is really pointing to. Jesus' resurrection of Lazarus was parabolic of what Jesus will do on the great day. Ultimately, Jesus will destroy death by dying and rising. And what's crazy is that this moment, this particular miracle, this is the linchpin. This is the domino that gets tipped over and guarantees that Jesus will be crucified. Let me show it to you in the text. Look at verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Do you not understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people so that the whole nation would not perish? 
He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied. He prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not only for the nation, but also together into one, the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. This is amazing. Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead ultimately leads to Jesus being crucified on a Roman cross. Think about it. Jesus, by getting Lazarus out of the tomb, guarantees that he will enter the tomb. By giving Lazarus life, Jesus brings death upon himself. But listen, in Jesus bringing death upon himself, he also institutes the beginning of the new creation because Jesus that died was three days later raised from the dead. In his death and resurrection, Jesus faced death head on and he snatched victory on death's own turf. I love the Apostles' Creed. Love it. That we talk about Jesus who died and was buried, who descended Jesus went into death's own turf. He went toe-to-toe with death and death was no match for Jesus because Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And there's a day coming where scripture promises us that he who is reigning now will reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 26. And the last enemy to be destroyed will be death, will be death. There's a resurrection processional that's coming on the last day of history. Jesus will be at the front of the parade and the saints that have gone before us will be behind him. And at the very back will be sin, Satan, Satan, sin and death chained up and being led into the arena of hell to be destroyed forever. St. Athanasius put it like this. Death has become like a tyrant who has been completely conquered by the legitimate monarch, bound hand and foot by the passers-by who sneer at him, hitting him and abusing him, no longer afraid of this cruelty and rage because of the ruler who has conquered him. So has death been conquered and branded by the Savior on the cross." Listen, Advent invites us to stand in the tension. Jesus has come. Death has been definitively defeated by Jesus. Jesus can say to Mary and Martha, and he can say to you and me, I am the resurrection and the life. And because of that, we can look death in the eye, not avoiding it, not deflecting it, not pretending like it's not coming for us, but we can look it in the eye and we can know that it's an enemy that's been defeated. And actually, actually, it's been so thoroughly defeated that when death thinks it's won, we actually stand in the presence of God. And that ultimately at the return of Jesus, ultimately when he comes back, all of us will be raised with him, given new bodies like his glorified body, that will be impervious to sin and death, that will never wear out, that will never lead us astray from the living God. We will be raised with him to be like him and under him. And this is why why on Christmas Eve, I hope we sing, 
Hark, the herald angel sings. It says, hail the heaven-born prince of peace. Hail the son of righteousness. Light and life to all he brings. Risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by. Born that men no more should die. Born to raise the sons of earth. Born to give them second birth. Hark the herald angel sings glory to the newborn king. At some point, maybe soon, maybe decades from now, my beloved wife will go to be with Jesus or I will go to be with Jesus. And Christian doctrine around death doesn't tell us to pretend that that's something we should celebrate and clap for. It's a tragedy. Death is an enemy that Jesus is willing to weep over and angry about. But because of Jesus' death and resurrection and return, I don't have to live in fear of that moment. She doesn't have to live in fear of that moment because ultimately, ultimately, death itself will die because of Jesus Christ. So friends, I invite you, I invite you to receive the gift of immortality in Jesus. (laughs) To celebrate it. To boast in his glory with confidence. To not live a life of fear. To mourn when your loved ones die, but to mourn with hope. To be an Advent people looking for the resurrection of Jesus, the resurrection of the dead at the return of Jesus. Let's pray. Hey, Father, thank you so much. We honor you and we glorify you for your son, Jesus. Jesus, we praise you, we honor you, we magnify you. We thank you that death could not hold you. We thank you that the grave will not be able to hold us because we belong to you. I pray, Lord, that where there's fear and anxiety and panic around issues pertaining to death in this room, that you would bring us into a place of confident boasting in Jesus. God, I I pray that um, the practice of the saints that have gone before us to somewhat frequently meditate on their death so that they can live lives of obedience to Jesus would be our practice. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to be people that die well, that die in faith. And we thank you so much, Jesus, that you didn't leave us under the tyranny of Satan, sin, or death. So help us to offer you all of our lives now in worship and in obedience, we pray. Amen.